What's up? It's episode 101, pain points of wealth and earnings season is not so bad. Banks earnings looking relatively strong. Everything's still in the backdrop of what is the Fed going to do? Are they going to keep raising interest rates? Are they going to pause? Are they going to start lowering interest rates? Nobody really knows. And meanwhile, the market's like a roller coaster ride up one day, down the next, can't really find any footing. Uncertainty is high. Russia still in invasion with Ukraine. China sounds like Xi Jinping now is the ultimate ruler forever. It's a crazy world. We're going to actually break it down for you today. We're going to give you our thoughts on exactly what's going on in the economy, what's going on in the stock market, the yin and yangs, everyday moves, how to play it. And on the tipping point today, we're going to talk about how every investor on Wall Street gets treated the same, no matter how much money you have. It's bad. We're going to uncover it for you. Check it out. We got a great show. Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod. Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. Well, guys, we've got a lot going on right now. You got the midterms coming up, right? I can't believe the election's only a couple of days away. We have uh, big developments in China. We now have a forever leader, you know, in China. Now that's not uh, sitting too well with the markets, but the real focus has been on interest rates. Let's face it, the market can't go anywhere until rates start, stop going up. And last week, we had a leak from the Fed that, you know, they're definitely going to raise rates 75 basis points in next week's meeting. But they're going to take a hard look at what they're going to do in December. So there's a uh, hint that there may be a pause, not necessarily a pivot in the Fed's thinking, because they keep going, they're going to break the economy. And I don't think anybody wants that. Well, let's see, inflation's transitory. We're not even thinking about raising rates. We're going to make the economy feel some pain. I'm calling BS on that one. What do you think? Well, it's like, who knows, right? I mean, who knows what's going on in the mind of Jay Powell? I have no idea, because it just seems like they were completely wrong a year ago. Now they're trying to act real, real tough. But you know, my question is, why not pause and just see what happens? Because we know when you raise interest rates, it takes a long time for that to filter into the economy. And we already know the housing market is having big problems, right? We went from a 3% mortgage to a 7% mortgage, and the housing market has basically come to a standstill. And that obviously plays a lot into the inflation number, right? Real estate, something like 40% of that, but it's a lagging indicator or it's lagging data. So we're not going to really know what kind of effects the Fed is having on inflation for a couple months. Meanwhile, the Fed just keeps looking backwards at the numbers we've already seen. And like, I'm not an economist, but that's not real helpful considering the fact on the ground floor here, we're really seeing signs that inflation is coming down. Well, the smartest economist I know is uh, Dr. Jeremy Siegel, and he's been very vocal to the point where he's telling the Fed that they should apologize to you and I and the rest of the American public you know, for how inept they've been. But I thought you're supposed to have the smartest minds in the economics field at the Fed. Is Dr. Siegel smarter than they are, or maybe they should hire him? Are they really that smart at the Fed? I think that's the real question, right? They have all the data in the world, but they couldn't see inflation coming a year ago. Now they see it perfectly. You know, I don't buy that either. To Chris's point, it's like, yeah, who knows what they're looking at? But I think the problem is we look at it as like this all-knowing bunch of bankers that know something, then they don't really know that much. I mean, who knows that much? You can't predict the future. No one knows what's going to happen in the future. If we did, we'd all be on our yachts. So I think all we can hope for is that people are going to make good decisions. And I think that's what you're seeing, right? I mean, company earnings 
coming in way stronger than expected. Even with high inflation, the earnings number has been pretty good. It means companies are navigating the supply chain issues, the high, high costs, the high labor market. So you know, at the end of the day, humans are resourceful. You're seeing it right now on display. And I think that's a very, very optimistic viewpoint to take. And that's why you, know, you don't want to be scared right now and concerned because people figure out a way. Well, we're now at a point in the market where you know, good news is bad news and bad news is good news. And then there's a little mixed bag of both. So you have the GDP number coming out this week. Some economists are going to say things may be very, very strong. Remember, we had two negative prints of GDP. A lot of people think we're going to have a strong GDP number reported on Thursday. And earnings so far have been above expectations. Now, they've been a little weaker than they were last quarter, but they're still positive. And then you get these rip-your-face-off rallies from companies when they come in with really decent earnings. You know, Lamb Research came in the other day with decent earnings, really good earnings. Stock went from 300 to 370 in one week. Same thing happened with Lockheed Martin. Their, their earnings were very well received. They had announced the big buyback of their stock. They increased their dividend, or they're going to put together a lot of money to increase their dividend. That stock jumped almost 20% in less than two weeks. So the problem with trying to time the market is that you can get on the sidelines and wait for the good news, but the good news happens, you can't get back in. So it's one of these cases where, you know, we're in a corrective phase of the market and it's going to stay a corrective phase until the Fed stops. And that may be very well be happening right now. But like you say, right, nobody can predict what's unknowable. Well, you know, it goes back to your point, Dad, about people trying to time the market. You know, I'm getting more and more calls over the past couple of weeks about clients wanting to get out, wanting to sit in cash, waiting for things to turn around. And I just keep reminding them about what happened back in 2020, where, you know, at the drop of the hat, the market just turned around and nobody expected it. But they still insist on, hey, you know, it starts to go up a little bit, we'll get back in. But I think that becomes a fool's errand. Well, it went up a little bit on Friday and Monday, right, Chris? We had a thousand point move in two days. Is that a little bit? It's a big run. Yeah. How do you define a little bit? Yeah. Well, that's the biggest mistake that investors are going to make right now, right? And when everyone has the same idea at the same time, it's probably wrong. And you're hearing a lot of like, let's just go to cash. Let's buy a two-year CD that pays over 4%. Sounds very rational, right? Like four, four and a half percent is a great rate. But the problem is, is a couple of things. First off, interest rates could come down from here. You know, they've gone straight up recently, but there's a chance the Fed at some point could start to lower interest rates. And in two years from now, your CD comes due, that 4.5% you're getting, maybe you're only getting 3 or 2%. The other issue is what you guys are talking about right now is the rally could, we could have a huge rally in stocks like at any moment right now. So getting out of stocks, missing a rally, and then locking your money into a rate that might not be as good in two years is a big mistake that most investors are making right now. It's always that like conventional wisdom, what everybody wants to do tends not to be the best decision in hindsight. Well, the other thing too is it's that like everybody's betting on what things are going to get worse in the future. But what people don't understand is that if things are getting worse in the future, people are trying to get out now. So all the volatility now is based on what people are thinking are going to happen in six, seven months time. Well, you know what they say, guys, a rising tide lifts all boats, but a uh, decreasing tide drops all boats, right? So the worst advice I've ever seen a financial advisor give is to sell low. And, you know, unfortunately, when all the news is negative, when all the sentiment is negative, when everybody's saying the same thing, prices reflect that. And, you know, when prices are low, that's when opportunities are the greatest. Because last I looked, and in my, all my years of experience, good things happen to stocks at low prices. Dad, I really like that analogy about the tides. And as you know, I'm a boater. You know, and I think that, you know, the tide doesn't rise boats or lower boats if your boat's sitting on land. A boat sitting on land is pretty useless. Money and sitting in cash is also very useless. I don't know, Chris, I've seen you sail before. Maybe you're better off on the land. Well, I got to tell you guys, you know, I'm down in Naples right now, and I've never seen so many boats sitting on people's lawns, on docks, 
on the street, you know, from Hurricane Ian. It's just been devastating. And I just spoke to a member of my club the other day, and he said that a 40-foot boat washed up on his lawn, called the owner, and the guy said, I don't want it. I'm not going to come get it. I mean, people are just abandoning their boats. It's so unbelievable. But again, you're right, Chris, you know, that boat sits on the lawn, doesn't matter which way the tide goes, it's not going to float or, you know, go up or down. Yeah, you got to be in the game to win, to use a very, very overused metaphor. But I think the bottom line right now, more than anything, is you have to think longer term on getting return on your money because inflation, it probably will come down here, but it's going to be a lot higher than when it was in the past. And we know just sitting in cash, earning a very nominal return on your money doesn't work long term. Meanwhile, stocks, we talk about every week, they're going to pay more cash flow than ever this year. Again, earnings are relatively strong. The labor market is relatively strong. We're looking to see some GDP growth that's positive this quarter. And even looking out the next year, earnings are supposed to be positive again. So even when you start looking out like 12, 24 months, like things look pretty good. And that's what you have to start thinking about as an investor is not what things look like today, but what can they possibly look like when we're talking 12 months from now and 24 months from now. And my guess is all this fear mongering that we've been hearing well, it's going to look ridiculous when we look at it in hindsight, but then you'll go back and listen to pain points of wealth and make, hey, those guys are pretty smart, especially the oldest son. I can't remember his name though. The biggest problem, guys, is investing is so counterintuitive. And you, know, you look at the market this year, it's not the worst year for stocks. I mean, we had a worse year in the stock market just two years ago. Remember, the S&P 500 was down 35% in five weeks. Now, it didn't feel so bad because it bottomed very quickly and turned around. You know, the S&P is only down a little over 20% this year. Why it feels so bad, it's the worst year in 100 years for a balanced portfolio. So if you're a conservative investor, which I am and we are and all our clients are, a balanced portfolio is having its worst performance in 100 years. No wonder it feels bad. It is bad. But if you go back and you look at any time in history where you had the worst performance of the equity market or a balanced portfolio, was it a time to buy or a time to sell? Man. I can't figure out that answer. How about you guys? Well, you know what, Dad? I think you made a good point. You know, it is the worst time to be in a balanced portfolio, but it's even worse to be in an unbalanced portfolio. You know, if you look at the S&P 500, where, you know, it's capitalization weighted like any index, you know, big tech was overweighted. That's what's getting hit the hardest. That's what's getting hit at worst. So, you know, what's the best option to be in cash, to be in a balanced portfolio, or to be in a asset class that's overweighted and the things that are going down? Well, if I was a betting man, we look back retroactively in 12, 24 months, you're going to wish you were in that balanced portfolio. You know, guys, you look back on the history of the S&P, right? It never fails to make after a new low, when it makes that ultimate low, to go back and make and exceed the all-time high. In this case, it was just back in January. If we go back to the highs, and even if it takes five years, that's almost a 6 7% return a year, right? Where are you going to get that performance, right? You have to look forward, not backwards. You got to think like the market, which looks forward. At some point, you're going to be rewarded. I just don't know when. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 101, Pain Points of Wealth. Everything you hear on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially literally at any stage of your journey. But if you've saved over a million dollars and you want a more hands-on approach with your finances, Bob, Chris, and I will run for you our total financial master plan, and we'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. We only do 10 of these a week where we'll go through literally every investment you own. In fact, we'll build you your own personalized financial portal, give you a bird's eye view, of your entire financial picture, and we'll hone in on every single financial issue you need to address. We're going to look at diversification. 
Are you getting hit hard this year as markets are all over the place? Or have you been sitting in cash earning nothing, paralysis by analysis, trying to figure out what to do? We'll put together a full investment game plan, show you how to grow your money, but also most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. We're going to look at income. You need an income plan for retirement. We're going to show you how to put together a full income plan, show you how to optimize Social Security, how to draw income from your portfolio, factor in inflation because your costs are going to double over the next 20 years, putting together a comprehensive plan so you don't run out of money, and we're going to look at fees and taxes. We're going to do a deep dive of every investment you own, show you all those underlying fees are and those annuities, mutual funds, brokerage products, show you how to reduce that cost and optimize your portfolio for taxes. Now what you make, it's what you take. We're going to give you our full tax playbook. Simply go to www paincm.com slash financial plan. If you saved over a million dollars for your financial independence plan, go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. All right, it's the tipping point. This is where we pinpoint the pain point, having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And guys, you know, we've been looking at a lot of cases over the course of the last couple of weeks at our boutique firm, Pain Capital Management. Of course, that's P-A-Y-N-A. And we see every strategy under the sun. And we analyze portfolios. We look at all the underlying investments. And you know, the thing that blows my mind is it doesn't matter if you have $10 million or $10,000, Wall Street treats you the same. They sell you the same high cost, tax inefficient products. It doesn't even matter you know, how much money you have. And it's kind of criminal. And it's important as you build your net worth to make sure you're not constantly being treated like a retail investor. You know, it all comes down to the fiduciary rule. When President Obama proposed the fiduciary rule for the financial services industry, you know, it was amazing. You had banks, you had Wall Street firms, you had insurance companies. They all fought it because they don't want to act in the investor's best interest. They want to act in the shareholder's best interest. So if you're ever going to invest with a wirehouse or a bank or an insurance company, it's better to buy their stock because they're working in the best interest of the shareholder. They don't want to work in the best interest of the investor. And that's why that happens. I mean, every investment that they propose is to maximize the profit for the house, not for the client. Well, you know, what, Ryan and I recently looked at a case and the portfolio was north of $10 million. And we went through every single investment and compared it against the index. And with the exception of one fund, every single one of those investments underperformed their index net of fees. Well, that's the dirty secret of our industry. It's like you pay more in fees for a professional manager, and I put that in quotes, and it's more tax inefficient because they buy and sell all the time, yet the performance is usually less than buying a very low-cost exchange-traded fund or index. I mean, it's like, and to Chris's point, I mean, we went through probably like 20 different funds. Literally one of them out of 20 funds actually outperformed. <laughs> That's horrible odds. And I, I would argue some of that is probably luck or that manager was taking way more risks than they should have been taking. But if you look at the fees, I mean, in some cases you're paying 2%, 2.5%, and never mind the tax burden of them selling and buying all year long, triggering lots of unnecessary long-term and short-term capital gains. Well, a lot of times these investments involve leverage, which is hard to see when you look at the offering memorandum or you look at the proposal you know, put together by the bank or the wirehouse and the insurance company. And you only kind of find that out in hindsight when you see, you know, a closed-end bond fund down 35, 40% in a market that's only down 10. So what happens is that they try and reach for yield. And as I've always said, guys, more money's been lost in every market in history reaching for yield than at the point of a burglar's gun. 
And that's how Wall Street seduces you, right? They always seduce you with yield. It's always a product where it's a high income product. And to your point, Bob, a lot of these closed end funds. In fact, we did a radio show last weekend. We had a guy call in asking about closed end funds. One was paying like 14%. He's like, his buddy told him, should I get into this? Such a great yield, a dollar cost average. And we're like, no, <laughs> you shouldn't. If you're getting a 14% yield, there's a problem. There is unnecessary risk there that you shouldn't be taking. Like you should always check yourself with like, look, if I'm only getting 4% on a treasury bond and this offers 14%, there's something wrong here. If it's too good to be true when it comes to Wall Street, it usually is. <laughs> like it's a good rule of thumb. I looked at a fund the other day and again, the same situation. It was paying a great yield. But when you actually break down where the yield's coming from, half of it was return on their capital. Yeah. Well, return of your money is a good thing, Chris, but not when they include that as your return. Which is very deceiving because how do you know when you see the yield, you just assume that's income. It's not that the fact they're borrowing against your assets. It's not the fact that they're giving you principal back, right? So these are things you have to look at because a lot of these quote unquote private REITs, and this is my favorite on Wall Street. It doesn't matter what the bank is. They love to go after high net worth investors with, look, we have something very exclusive that we have special for you. There's nothing exclusive and special for a retail investor ever. <laughs> you know, if, if they're giving it to you and me or giving it to anybody in a retail platform, that means they can't sell it to institutions anymore. They don't want it. You're getting the leftovers and odds are it's a horrible deal. Yeah, typically it is. And you know, the sexiest investments that I've ever seen in my career have been hedge funds. They have these great ideas. They're able to go long, go short, invest in you know, asset classes that aren't typically available on the New York Stock Exchange. And they generally have very high fees, right? Usually the, the old expression of two and 20, right? They get 2% in an annual fee plus 20% of the high water mark above you know, whatever the investor makes. And I've seen a lot of hedge funds that are having decent years this year. And then you know, after the end of the conversation, they say, well, it's good they're having a good year because they haven't performed for 13. And so you look at their average track record, it's horrific. And again, you know, they're going to track a lot of money because they're having a good couple of months. But again, it's like when you look at the performance, net of fees, it's so much better you know, to keep it simple. Complexity doesn't necessarily equal outperformance. In most cases, it guarantees underperformance. I guess they don't subscribe to the paying capital mantra of money saved in taxes and fees is just as green as money made in the market. I don't think so, Chris. And you know, I was up, uh, up, up in Newport with you this summer, and I saw a lot of those mansions. And a lot of them are hedge fund owned. Not by the clients of the hedge funds, but by the hedge fund managers. They're the managers, not the investors. That's correct. Where are the clients' yachts? When Chris has a yacht one day, we should all be suspect of you know, what he's advising his clients to do. So be very wary of Chris's boat. It'll be called Ryan's Money. <laughs> Ryan's Money. There you go. No, the other thing to think about too, I mean, it is crazy. It's like one of the only industries in the world where you get better compensation for bad performance. It kind of blows my mind. I think the problem is... No one likes to accept that the non-sexy, boring strategy works the best, right? Chris, you just mentioned taxes, like a low-cost strategy with low fees that tracks the index, right? It's a very simple concept. It tends to outperform 90% plus of the time. So I think it's just one of these things where it's like, it's not alluring. It's not sexy to own a diversified, long-term strategy that's tax efficient. There's nothing in that that's exciting. But with some of these exclusive products that get pitched sound very exciting. But unfortunately, it's not very exciting when you lose your money. Well, you know, it blows my mind when we review these portfolios with $20, $25 million of investment, and they're invested with a wirehouse or a bank, and they're not buying institutionally priced individual high-quality bonds where you're limiting your downside. You know, you have a sophisticated investment, a strategy where it's managed to your goals on a daily basis, 
they stick them into a fund that's available to anyone with $500 to $1,000, whether it's a closed-end fund or an open-ended fund. And I don't know if that's just lazy thinking or the fees are higher, which they are. I just don't understand why you wouldn't ask, offer a sophisticated investor on a retail level you know, a sophisticated investment product that's in their best interest. Yeah, and it's simple, right? Your bonds come due, and even now with bond prices down dramatically this year, you still know some date in the future you're getting your money back, right? It's assured that you're going to get your money back. And that's the whole point of having safer investments in your portfolio. And Bob, as you like to say, you coined this phrase many years ago, it's permanence and definition when you own the bond. You know the interest rate you're getting, and you know the date in the future money's coming back. So even though it's painful right now to have bonds down, you still know eventually you're getting your interest, that money's coming back to you. And a lot of these exotic bond products, which have been blowing up left and right, that's not the case. And it's so important when you're building your wealth for the long term is you've got to build some assurances into your portfolio. And if you don't do that, like this is a perfect example, a time like right now, you're in a position where you may never recoup the losses, especially in some of these more exotic bond strategies that we've been reviewing. Well, it's not just Wall Street, guys. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal today about our money center banks, and they have the lowest rate on deposits of any institution in the country. And then they're offering all their investors, all their depositors, you know, a one-year CD at 2%. Well, meanwhile, they go to a Fidelity or a bank or any of the major banks and offer bank CDs for the same one-year maturity and offer 4.1%. So it's like they treat their depositors poorly. It's like they don't care. They look at them, you know, like Goldman Sachs used to call their clients Muppets. I mean, it's insulting. I don't, I don't know why anyone would stay there. And they, what they really bank on, you know, to use an interesting word, right, is the inertia. It's like, oh, it's like such a hassle to transfer my money. I'm going to leave it there. But it just doesn't get treated poorly. That can't last forever. And it's unbelievable how Wall Street banks and insurance companies treat their, what they call their important clients. Yeah, so it's boring is better. Simplicity over complexity, I think, is the message here. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 101, Pain Points of Wealth. We literally have now over 100,000 downloads. We appreciate all your support. If you like our content, love it. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Leave us a comment there. If this is on Spotify, you can subscribe. And if this is on YouTube, you can like this episode. You can subscribe to the channel. Click that notification bell so every week can be updated of all our new content. Your support gives us the ability to continue to do this podcast, so don't keep us a secret. Thank you for your support. We love doing this podcast. We hope you're enjoying it. All right, it's the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. All right, Bob, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter for $54.20 a share is at a price that has doubled the current valuation of Twitter's main rivals, Meta, which used to be Facebook and Snap. At a sales multiple in line with Meta and Snap, Musk should be paying more like $24 per share for Twitter. No wonder why he fought so hard to get out of this deal. Yeah, I wonder if he's still trying to fight to get out of it. It doesn't look like they're going to let him. I thought it was crazy when he made that offer. It was at the time, if you go back and check our podcast, we were telling everyone to avoid these high beta, these high multiple stocks like Twitter, like Meta, like Snap. I mean, I think after this, he's going to start listening to podcasts for you know, some financial advice. The guy's down $100 billion so far this year. I don't feel bad for him. <laughs> He's still almost worth a quarter trillion dollars. Not so bad. Chris, the current rise in mortgage rates has real consequences. The $1,900 a month payment on a $450,000 home with a 30-year mortgage at 3% can only support now a $300,000 loan at 6.5% interest rates. It's getting real with mortgage rates so high. 
You know, it's amazing. The last 10 years, I've been telling clients not to pay down their mortgages because they were borrowing at, you know, two, three percent. Now, you know, with rates being so high, you know, anybody's got a six and a half mortgage, six and a half percent mortgage, it doesn't make sense to keep that money in the market. It makes more sense to pay down that mortgage. Yeah, it really does. And it's just amazing in a couple months how expensive financing costs have become. And another reason why the Fed here should pause. Can you hear me, Jay Powell? Take a break, man. <laughs> we need some love here in the housing market. One of the reasons why you've got to see inflation come down because the housing market at this point has come to a complete halt. Well, the other crazy thing too, Ry, is I, my car's coming off lease and I have to decide whether I want to trade it and get a new one, but you can't get a new car for four months. The price is 30% higher than what I paid for it. And the interest rates are 7.2% for a 48-month loan. So definitely not advantageous at this point. Jeez, Bob, Chris with all his cars, his boats. Oh my God, like living the life of Riley over there. It's good to be Chris. Bob, we always have to get a rock and roll stat in here. I can't help myself. Only two bands that have surpassed the $2 billion sales mark for concert ticket sales in their history are the Rolling Stones and U2. Wow, $2 billion in sales. I, you know, how many yachts do you need to ski behind? I'm wondering when the Rolling Stones are going to take it easy, get off the road, because I don't know if you guys have seen a picture of them lately. Life's been tough on those faces, let me tell you. I suspect it probably doesn't have as much about being on the road rather than some of those experimental drugs they may have taken in their youth they're possibly still taking but well it's a miracle keith richards is still alive but you know mick he's still got that groove he still puts on a show out there so much respect to the rolling stones from rom standard yeah if you call up to do a free review ryan will do the mick jagger chicken dance for you <laughs> i think mick does it better even in, <laughs> he's more spry than me well you know the old expression guys when i was growing up jim fix was a guru of exercise and he died of a heart attack at 40 and, you know, they always said, well, Jim Fix is dead and Keith Richards, you know, smokes like a fiend, takes every drug he can get his hands on, still going strong. So choose your poison. The old thing is God must be a Rolling Stones fan because Keith's still alive. Chris, stock prices aren't great at predicting recessions. The market provided one month advance notice for the 2001 recession. The stock market was three months late in its warning of the 1973 recession and eight months late in the 2008 recession. False warnings came in 1962. 1977 and 1987. Sounds like the market's not really great at predicting economic downfall. Well, you know, the one thing I would take from that is that the market has recovered substantially from all those pullbacks. And I once heard a quote from somebody say that the media has accurately predicted 29 of the last three recessions. So I think the key is here is don't try to predict the market. Don't try and guess what the market's doing. Just be in. Well, you know, guys, like the official government agency that tells you that we had a recession, you know, it doesn't tell you about it until it's well over. So, you know, the market doesn't really tell you or react to the recession. Typically, once you know officially there's been a recession, markets close to or at an all-time record high. No, exactly. As the old famous quote goes, the market predicted the last nine of the last six recessions. So, you know, look, we may go into recession, we may not go into recession, but it seems to me somewhere ahead here, we're going to be on to a much firmer ground, much better place with the economy, the markets. You just got to stay the course. All right, that's it for this week's episode 101, Pain Points of Wealth. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like our podcast, love our podcast, please give us a five-star ratings on iTunes. Leave us a comment. If it's on Spotify, you can subscribe. And if it's on YouTube right now, give us a like. You can click the subscribe button and click that notification bell so you can be updated of all our new episodes. That's it. Stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to the Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully, you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. 
You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed.